Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Uh, happy free agent frenzy in October. It's been very strange. Like, I, I associate free agent frenzy with uh, kicking off my shoes and going to the beach after it's all done. And now I suppose it's putting on shoes and getting apple cider donuts is what we're going to try to do, maybe? Happy off-season, indeed. And it, I find it funny, too, because I feel like there's, I don't know, once a year on Twitter when everyone's like, thank you so much for following our coverage. It means a lot. This yeah. year, I feel like we got five waves of that, the self-congratulatory <laughs> Twitter. That's right. We're probably going to get it again in a week, so beware. It- it's very strange. And then, and then of course, like, uh, you know, there's the whole thing of, yeah, we'll talk to you next season. And then next season starts like in a week because they just decided <laughs> to move everything up because like the COVID testing in Alberta is pretty good. I mean, who's to say? But uh, it, it was strange. And thanks just off the top of the show. Thanks for checking out our coverage on ESPN.com. The numbers were insanely good. And uh, we owe it to you for doing that to uh, spend time reading our stuff on the draft and reading our stuff on free agency. Um very good stuff, and and obviously had a lot to talk about, which we'll do now on this very podcast. Uh, so let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I am Greg Wachinski, so-called senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan. I think I'm just a national NHL reporter these days. And Greg, you didn't talk about the guests off the top. We've got three great guests on the show. The bell of the free agent ball, as you said, GM Kevin Adams of the Buffalo Sabres, plus a duo of maybe two of the best women's hockey players to ever play the game for USA and in the world. Cami Granato and Megan Duggan. Um, we're going to get into a whole lot of topics with them, including Megan's recent retirement. But like you said, it's the off season, and which means we got to recap free agency. We're going to recap free agency throughout the show, but we're going to start with the big fish that uh, were uh, hooked and and uh, and drawn in by teams. And we have to start with the NHL's greatest soap opera right now, which is everything that happened with the St. Louis Blues, everything that happened with the Vegas Golden Knights. So to recap, the Vegas Golden Knights in general, I think, have yeah, been oh. the NHL's greatest soap opera since they've come into the league. Well, they if, since they come into the league, and then also you know throughout the playoffs and goalies and swords in their back and the whole thing. Let's start with St. Louis. So Alex Pietrangelo clearly had a contract in mind. The parameters of that contract were shared many many months ago with the Blues. The first inkling of something being weird was the Justin Falk trade, in which they mm. traded for Justin Falk. Gave him a no trade clause, immediately extended him on a contract. And I remember being in St. Louis for that trade and people being like, huh, that's curious. A veteran defenseman given a long term contract, given that Alex Petrangelo, your captain, is becoming a free agent after the season. And then we go move on. And, and now we're getting into the, th- the, the thick of it. And we start to see that there is a schism between Petrangelo and the team. He would like to have mm-hmm. a contract laden with bonus money in case. There's any kind of buyout in his future. Teams like now nah, huh. we don't do that. Uh, he's like, hey, I'd Which like a no, for, no, no move clause too. Teams like we don't do that either. For good reason, because it feels like we are getting into this era where GMs are just handing out big contracts and buying out the end of it's left and right. Correct. That's why, he, and, and he knows that. So, so Petrangelo's <laughs> like, I'd like these things. Also, you know, I love it here, and I'm your captain. And then the Blues are like, yeah, you know who else loved it here was our captain? David Backus. Guess where he is now? So Petrangelo then does this thing, and this is where we get into the soap opera of it, where he starts to go through the St. Louis media and put it out there that I want to stay in St. Louis. My family's from St. Louis. We put roots down in St. Louis. You don't uproot a mighty oak and move it somewhere else. I am, I am a St. Louis guy. He cut me and I bleed blue. And the Blues are like, all right, that's all well and good, but we're still not giving you a no-move clause. So then it gets really interesting because Peter Angelo is going to into free agency. He's still talking to the Blues. Meanwhile, the Blues are talking to Tory Krug. Tory Krug, the second bell of the free agent ball when it comes to defensemen. And then they signed Tory Krug to a seven-year contract for less than they were going to pay Peter Angelo. So they get younger and they get cheaper. And now Alex is like, well, what am I going to do? And here come the Vegas Golden Knights. And they're like, hey, listen, remember that contract you won with the Blues? We'll give it to you. How about that? 
You just have to come to Vegas and see if you like it, meet Bill Foley and go to Summerlin and see what kind of house you're going to live in with the family and the whole thing. And he does that. And he's like, that's fine. I, I thought it was all the strip, but it turns out there's other neighborhoods in Vegas. And they give him the bonus money and they give him the no move clause. But uh-oh, looks like they forgot to trade their goalie. The goalie carousel spins out of control. Marc-Andre Fleury does not find a spot. They couldn't figure out a way to get a $7 million hit, uh, cap hit off their books. So they got to do some other stuff. They trade Paul Sazny to the Winnipeg Jets. So that's one, one step. And the big step, they trade Nate Schmidt. Beloved, iconic golden misfit. The head of the fun committee, Emily. They ship him out to Vancouver to create room to bring in Alex Petrangelo. And in this moment, we realize the Golden Knights are all grossed up. The Golden Misfits put on a tie and got a haircut and got a job at the bank. They're a real business-like operation now. Not don't Save your family stuff. Save your funds. It's all business now. And that, friends, is how this whole soap opera played out. What was your reaction to all of it? It's, you know, when I think of the three big fish of free agency, Hall, Petrangelo, and Krug, but specifically when it comes to Krug and Petrangelo, it's effing ruthless. And I really <laughs> feel like the Golden Knights lately have been ruthless. Um, this was a team that in their first season, like you said, banded together as the Golden Misfits. Nobody wanted us and all we have is each other and we're going to win with each other. And now all of a sudden you see them shopping Marc-Andre Fleury, the face of the franchise, putting Nate Schmidt out on the trade block, not even telling him he's traded until it happens. Jonathan Marcheseau has been mentioned, and it, you know his name is kind of swirling around. Max Pacioretty, all of these guys, um, they want to win, and they want to win bad, and they're going to do it at all costs. And you know, I think the fan base, it's a new fan base, and you know, it was all goodwill, and we're all in this together, and now they're understanding the hard business of hockey. And the other reason I bring up Krug is because, you know what? Don Sweeney, just as ruthless. When you yeah. listen to Tory Krug talk about it, and I remember last year, it was September at the Player Media Tour. I talked to Tori Krug and, uh, you know, reading, you know, now we know what we know. Around that time, he was offered what he says is his only offer from the Bruins. Um, it was a deal. They tried to make a counteroffer. There was no negotiations. There was no talks after that. He says his offer was pulled. This is an undrafted free agent, beloved by the fan base, hugely valuable on the power play. And they don't even want to talk about it. Like, yeah. this to me is Stone Cold Business by Don Sweeney. Um, it's Stone Cold Business by Kelly McCrinnan. And really, it's Stone Cold Business by the Blues and Doug Armstrong because they really just look like they've got ice in their veins after this. I, there's a certain amount of unsentimentality or lack of sentimentality mm -hmm. that Doug Armstrong has that I find both shocking but also really appealing. <laughs> There's like a combination yes, yes, of those yes, yes. two feelings. I feel the same exact way. I'm disgusted, but because wow. like the blue, the Blues are like the team that always puts out the family vibe. Like they're the they're the team that crows about mm -hmm. all the ex players coming back and living in St. Louis and and being around yeah, the team. Super strong the, wag culture. The wives and girlfriends have oh, a really great community there. Yeah. And then they're the first team to just be like, ah, actually, uh, you are too old and too expensive, and now you can go play in Boston or go play in, Ve in, Ve in Vegas. It's crazy. Uh, real briefly on Taylor Hall, because we're going to get into it a, a big time with Kevin Adams in a second. Shocking. I mean, like, nobody in their right mind had Buffalo on the list of teams they thought Taylor Hall should go to. I find it – my pet theory on this, besides the obvious – connection with Ralph Kruger. Here we are all looking at John Hines and the Nashville Predators as being the coach he'd like to play for, all forgetting that the guy he loved to play for was Ralph Kruger for those couple of years in Edmonton. Um, and on top of, obviously, the Jeff Skinner uh, contract bump that'll happen by playing with Jack Eichel, I gotta believe that like he looks at Boston, he looks at Nashville, he looks at Colorado, and he sees Gabe Landeskog, he sees Brad Marchand, and he sees Philip Forsberg mm -hmm. in no particular order. And he says to himself, there are no guarantees I'm getting the spot I think I should get on this team because I am second man through the door when it comes to left wing. Not the case in Buffalo. You, you, sir, you, sir, could be assistant coach and top left wing if you wanted to. Like, you can get whatever you want in Buffalo if you Taylor Hall. Um, so I do wonder if, you know, getting the money he wanted, being with the coach he'd like to play for, obviously getting the best center he's ever played with, maybe, well, probably should say 
since Drysidal. In fairness to Drysidal, although Drysidal had not become Drysidal. But Drysidal wasn't Drysidal back right. then. Right. right. I think I think this is. I think he looks at those other teams and says, "I would rather be a star than being be a part of a, of a machine. Like I want to be a major cog in a in a machine when it's time to win a cup. I don't want to be riding second line left wing just for a year when I know that." behooves me to set my salary at a certain level and then just get all the points that I'm going to get playing with Jack Eichel. While we're getting into the speculation game, I'll let you know what the whispers are around the league. Ooh. Uh, this is the only place he could get this money. Oh, um, yeah. It's one year, $8 million. Colorado was interested, as you said. Boston was interested. Vegas was interested. It was clear he could do a one-year deal, but some of those teams could offer him only $5 million. I don't even think he got as far as talking money with some of those teams. And Mm -hmm. they were figuring out other pieces. He wanted certainty. And I've heard a couple agents and a couple players whisper, yeah, he says it's about winning, but it was also about earning $8 million this year. As we talked to with Kevin Adams, the winning stuff is just nonsense. I mean, they're not going to win the cup next year. Um, Maybe they could down the line. Ain't going to happen next year. Clip this, Ryan. Yeah, but you're right, though. Like, $8 million, if you can get that, and then you carry that over into your next deal, look, it's business 101. With your little ankle bump. Get a a contract, and then take that contract to your next employer and say, pay me more than this. You don't want to go backwards if you're Taylor Hall, even in this this economy. Um, But let's talk more about uh, Taylor Hall with uh, the the man who signed him, Kevin Adams. Joining us now on the line, general manager of your Buffalo Sabres, Kevin Adams. Coming away from free agency and the offseason so far, really putting his foot down, making a statement uh, in his first uh, run at this. And Kevin, thanks for joining us, man. Let's start with Taylor Hall. I mean, that's obviously where we should start. What, like, when you get an inkling that Taylor Hall is it has the Buffalo Sabres on his list, what what was your reaction, and, and what what wheels start going in motion after hearing that? Yeah, well, it's. Uh... It was exciting to uh, have initial dialogue with Darren Ferris and, and Taylor and just to kind of make sure that they knew that, that we were interested and um, had a brief conversation to, to let them know that obviously we were interested, but we want players that uh, that want to be here in Buffalo and that believe in what we're doing. So if that didn't uh, seem like it was something that was going to make sense, then you know we wouldn't keep pursuing. Um, but I'm certainly excited that the talks went well and then we went through the process over the next um few days and got to the point where we agreed it's uh, it's obviously exciting for our organization kevin we know that taylor and his agent were exploring all options when it came to structure when it came to term so they had an open mind but what were some of the questions that taylor or his agent specifically wanted to know from the sabers i i think the biggest one um which is probably the one that I would ask if I was in his shoes and is we want to win and do we want to win now? You know, he's, he's gotten to a place in his career where he's been in the league a long time. Uh, He's obviously been a elite player for a long time an MVP. Um, And he, you know, based on his relationship with Ralph and the previous experience there, you know, I, I knew right away that there was a comfort level on that part of it, which, which obviously plays a role. But then the second part of, okay, you know, where are we headed um, philosophically as an organization? What are we looking to do and how? And we were able to have those conversations, and it certainly helped that you know, we did it collaboratively with uh, Terry and Kim Pagula involved in the process, myself and Ralph, and just able to have really open and honest dialogue around um, what's going on and with our organization, where we see this moving forward, uh, you know, bigger picture of the type of people that we want to have in this organization and why. And so – those are all important parts of discussion um, that we were able to really get across and they were able to ask the questions they need to ask. And um, then he was able to make his decision. All right, Kevin, we can't beat around the bush. Taylor says he wanted to win. You were one of seven teams that didn't make this postseason tournament. You have the longest postseason drought in the NHL. Like this is surprising to a lot of people. What was the reaction from your peers around the league? Like what kind of phone calls were you getting? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I think everybody everybody looks at their own individual situation and everybody's trying to improve their roster every day and those are just conversations that are that are ongoing. But you know, I, I guess there's a few parts to this, you know, for me. Um first one being that what what happened over the last few days underlines the commitment that Terry and Kim Pagula have showed this organization in City of Buffalo since day one. You know, there's there's been 
um, always the resources put in place and, and their dream of, of putting a contender on the ice and ultimately winning a Stanley Cup is what, what drives them. So that's starting with ownership. And then, you know, I, I, as, as I was fortunate enough to get put in this position, you start to have a lot of meetings with the coaching staff the first couple months in our hockey operations department to say, okay, where are we at? What do we, what do we need? What are we, what are we looking to accomplish on the ice in terms of the principles? What type of players? What are we lacking? Um, we identified some areas that we felt that we needed to improve and not just on the ice, but also in the locker room and character and professionals. And so we felt very fortunate. I think if you, you know, we can focus on Taylor, but I think if you start go backwards a little bit, uh, we were able to acquire Eric Stahl. That was critical for a lot of reasons. Um, obviously the center ice position and his leadership and it's only a handful of guys that have in the league right now that have done what he's done. Um, Stanley Cup winner and Olympic gold medalist. So I think that was critical. And Cody Eakin, another center iceman and character and uh, penalty killer and been a productive player. Um, you know, Reader and Irwin, these are high, high com, um, character type people to add. So those were all players we'd identified. And um, obviously, then having a chance to figure out a way if we could get Taylor Hall, one of the best players <laughs> in the world, um, to join a roster was, was what we were going to work to do. So um, I guess that's a long answer for you, but I, I think it's all part of how all general managers and ownership and everybody looks daily. Like, how do you figure out a way to improve your roster? And that's, that's the steps we went through. And now it's time to earn it. And I said this to the, you know, the Buffalo media the other day that I really felt um, there's been a little bit of a lack of connectivity between our team and City. Um, we want to be a team that the fans love to come to the rink and they enjoy it and they get excited when they come in our building and I think that's been missing a little bit so we're hoping that this uh, we took a step in the right direction. I thought that was one of the most fascinating things Taylor Hall said when he said that if you ask the boys around the league they're all kind of like rooting for Buffalo to be good because it, it is sort of that market where you know they know that Buffalo traditionally is one of the best viewership markets for, for hockey in the United States you know the fan base is just there. It's kind of like Chicago, like about a decade ago, where you know the minute the Sabres turn the corner and start really contending, then it just becomes this explosion of fandom, right? Like, I thought that was a really astute comment from, from Taylor. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I mean, obviously I'm a little biased. You guys may may or may not know this, but I'm, I grew up in Buffalo. I'm a Western New York native, and I, I you know, I fell in love with hockey and the Sabres as uh, six years old going to Memorial Auditorium and, um, understand kind of the true fabric of this community of what it means and what the organization means and the love that this city has for the team. So I'm probably in a unique position to kind of feel that maybe a little bit more than, than others, just because of my you know, growing up here. But at, you know, at the other part of your point, um, I was in Chicago at the end of my career as a player when everything it was Taves and Kane rookie year and you could literally feel it turning yeah <laughs> you could feel that what was going to happen there um and it was exciting and you know that's what we're looking to do here we have to earn the respect from our fan base we have to earn the respect from um, around the league um but if you put the if you put the blueprint together to of what you think you need to do to have success and then you go out there with the mentality of now it's time to earn it that's, that's the place to start so we're excited and hopefully we're dropping the puck at some point here soon and get to get after it <laughs> Indeed. Hey, on on the Jack Eichel front, like I, you've you've come out and, and threw some water on on the little fires that were burning in the off season about Eichel's availability. Our good friend Bob McKenzie throwing grenades from his hammock, as it were, uh, and starting a whole big conversation about Jack, as as one does. Um, how much of this off season do you think? You know, I don't want to say it was for Jack, but I mean, it clearly builds a better team around your star player. And um, and your conversations with Jack, like what's been his reaction to some of the moves that you've made, not only giving him potentially, you know, a top line left winger and Taylor, but also giving him that vital support in, in Eric Stahl in the 2C spot. Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to Jack, there's a couple of things there. First one is he has a tremendous relationship with Ralph Kruger and the coaching staff. Um, so that is a really important part for any player, but especially you know, star players to make sure that they're on the same page with the coach and they truly are aligned in every way. And and that's, that's really, you know, part one. And then for me, part two, since I started this job with Jack has been, you know, I can, I can talk to Jack and 
tell them what we want to do and, you know, write everything down and show them. But ultimately, it's about earning it. And, I, and I've said that, you know, to him and his agents that, you know, it's about it's about what can we do to help this roster get better and to surround Jack with the right players that we can put him and the rest of the team and organization in a position to have success. And, and instead of really overanalyzing it and talking about it, I said I, I feel in my role I have to, you know, prove it, and, and I want the players to have that earn it mentality, and that's the way I get up every day, and I have to earn it, and I have to earn the respect of the players and the fans and everybody in our organization. So I, I hope through some of these moves, um, all of our players feel that, okay, we're, we're, we're putting ourselves in a position to get better, and now it's a call that we're working. One area that I think a lot of people are looking at is goaltending. This is a year that was flush with options, whether it was free agents or trade candidates. And I've heard Ralph Kruger say that he's comfortable going with Linus Ulmark and Carter Hutton, but they, you guys might still be exploring options. Where do you stand now? Do you think you're going to add a goaltender? Do you think you're going to go with these guys? We're, we're comfortable. I think I would echo what Ralph said. Is uh, We thought Linus took a big step uh, last year, and you know, we need to get him uh, um, back under contract is one of our remaining guys we need to get signed but we really believe in in him as a as a goaltender and the steps he's taken and um i mean carter has been a you know, longtime pro and a very very good goaltender in this league for for a number of years and we're confident in both of them you know i think like any any part of a roster in any position um and i've been saying this from the beginning you have conversations daily and you listen and you think and there's ways to improve any area of a roster. You, you, you open to listening, but we are comfortable with where we're at in that. And um, we're looking forward to kind of getting this group that we've been able to assemble together and on the same page as quickly as possible, because, uh, you know, not you can focus on goaltending, but how we play defensively and, you know, how we are, what our forwards buy into in the D zone, all is a part of eliminating quality scoring chances that ultimately help goaltenders. So it all kind of works together and it's, so much emphasis and focus on goaltenders and um i certainly wasn't one so it's hard for me to speak for them but um, i think it's it's a it's a team effort you know we have to do the right things in front of them to make sure we're helping them out as well all right you've built a real strong team so far i i will count myself among the skeptics when you were hired sir but i have to say it's been a very impressive few months so far for kevin adams in buffalo my question is how do you do all this not even knowing when the season's going to start like, it's crazy to me that all you guys, you know, I don't know about you. My, my internal clock is all messed up. I don't even know when I can take a week off because it's October. And my brain is like, this is when you don't take any time off. It's the beginning of the season, except it's not. So I don't even know how you even approach trying to put these pieces in place, trying to do all of the scheduling that needs to be done, not even really knowing when the season starts. How are you approaching that, Kevin? Well, I, I think it's uh, <laughs> it's an interesting point, and I've had a lot of conversations with other general managers that we've all felt a little like before the critical dates calendar came out that we knew we were heading towards something, but wasn't exactly sure when. And <laughs> all of us were, you know, watching the the you know the emails closely to see if something came through. And then obviously the playoffs and the bubble I thought were tremendous, and the way the players competed, but what the NHL did to pull that off, I thought was phenomenal um and you know and then all of a sudden the critical dates calendar came out and we all looked at each other like this is going to be a uh, a blur here and to be honest to some extent it's felt uh since june when i was you know named in this role that it's just been let's let's be efficient let's prioritize um let's make sure we're we're, we're getting after it and, and it's been a uh not a lot of sleep um but you know now we kind of are in a position where it'll feel like, well, now, now we're waiting for the email to come through and when will training camp start? And then you, then you go from there again. So it, it's been challenging, but I will say, I, I, obviously having gone through the draft and agency for the first time in this role, you know, I, I didn't know any different, I guess, from the draft perspective, meaning that I had never been a general manager before and sitting at the draft on the, on the floor versus being in a war room. And, you know, so um, to me, it's, it's what we were it was in front of us, and we were going to do the best with what we could do. And that's you know, focus on what you control is something I think a lot about and talk a lot about, and I think that uh, was my message to our staff. Kevin, last one for me. So, like, let's just assume Jan 1, that's when the season starts. We can start training camp sometime in December. 
How are things going to be different um, because of the situation we're in? Like, I'm assuming you're not going to have a prospect development camp in this offseason, which is like a month. Um, you know, is there certain guys that you might not be able to bring in for training camp prospects that are over in Europe? Like, what type of things might be different than a typical year? Yeah, I think um, all of those. You know, I, uh, I was just thinking about that actually earlier this morning. I was thinking about are we going to be limited to the number of, of players that will be allowed to be at camp? How will that affect? Um, well, I mean, using an easy example of uh, J.J. Paterka, who we took with our second pick, you know, he's uh, is he going to be able to come? It would be great to have him in training camp, but does it interrupt the season he's in? Is it even allowed? I mean, there's so many of those type of questions where that's where um, we're going to really have to get dialed in on our development staff and um, make sure that we're we're on top of the the development piece because we'd all love to have everybody you know, a big camp and getting all those experiences they typically do or a rookie camp before, but um, the reality is it may not happen, right? So we want to make sure that um, we're putting our players in the best position to get better. And, you know, to me, that's like such a, just a message that we just keep talking about. Just get better every day. How, what are you doing? Um, focus on what you control, meaning you can't get bogged down in the unknown or the things that you can't um, control, but you, what you can focus on is no matter what's in front of you how do you get better there's ways to get better even if it's unique and you have to think outside the box so that's the challenge um, that we'll have our pro to our prospects through our uh, player development staff good stuff kevin congrats on a very strong off season thanks for giving us something to write about taylor hall to boston or colorado that's boring taylor hall to buffalo that's exciting, man. That's different. That's a surprise. We like surprises. Glad you say that. That's good. Oh, yeah. That's it's no, very no good news. Good news all around. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, and good luck for the uh, rest of the uh, the offseason, sir. Yeah, I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Our thanks to Kevin Adams of the Buffalo Sabres for joining us to talk about Stahl and Hall and all of it. Uh, Winners and Losers of NHL Free Agency is the article that Emily and I collaborated on that's on ESPN.com right now. Um, give me, give me, give me a couple signings that you thought were pretty, pretty good, uh, or, or decisions that you thought were pretty good from the free agent frenzy. I think Mark Bergevin had a heck of an off season. I really mm. did. I think he's feeling a lot of pressure from the ownership and the Molson family. You guys got to make the playoffs. We saw what they could do in the postseason. Um, and that surprise appearance where they had no business being there, but somehow upset the Pittsburgh Penguins. They've got elite defensive capabilities, but he understood, yes, you've got Carey Price, but you need a 1A. So he went out and got Jake Allen. They made their defense better by getting Joel Edmondson. And he got two wingers that it felt like everybody on the market coveted. It was Josh Anderson who, like, when you watch this guy play, he gives his heart and soul every mm -hmm. shift, and he can play a little offensively. Uh, he can play offensively. <laughs> and then you've got Tyler Toffoli uh, from Vancouver. And what I think was interesting about the Toffoli signing is that this is the guy Bergevin had coveted before at previous trade deadlines. Now he gets to sign him and not give up any assets. So I really think that the Canadians improved. I saw some quotes, I believe it was from Pierre McGuire, that says that uh, now the Canadians are in better shape than the Maple Leafs and Bruins. I will not go that far. But I do <laughs> think they are competitive and have a good shot at the playoffs next season. For sure. I do wonder, though, like this whole buzz around, you know, talks breaking off with Brendan Gallagher and, and the potential of him maybe moving. It just seems <sighs> so counterproductive. It's so it, you spend all this time talking about trying to make your team tougher to play against. And then you, you might move the guy who's the toughest to play against. It doesn't seem to really track. It kind of it kind of feels like one of those deals where he'll get squeezed out and then he'll spend the next three years trying to get a, quote, Brendan Gallagher type on that roster. So I hope they don't make the mistake of, of cutting ties with Gallagher. I think he's a really important The Domi thing, too, team. was interesting, just to mention yeah. that quickly. You know, there's a guy that they got, and he had a really good first season with them. Um, but it was clear there was friction between him and the coaching staff. I think yep. my understanding is Domi just fancies himself, I'm a center, and the coaching staff is like, well, you might play some wing for us. And it just wasn't working out. I do think, though, you know, as happy as the Columbus Blue Jackets are to get Domi, to sign him to two years – probably more money than he deserves to get that depth center. Um, the Canadians won that trade. They might have. Uh, the Ander Anderson's a guy that I know a lot of teams coveted. I just have a problem with rewarding a guy before he's earned it. And that contract is for who he might become. It's certainly not mm -hmm. because of who he is. And I think that's, and, uh, that's not, and he's that's not a signing history. you want to make. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
My I like uh, the bit of business that Joe Sackick did. I mean, as I've pointed out, if Joe Sackick calls you, don't pick up the phone. Don't answer your DMs. <laughs> don't answer your texts. If you see him at the GM meetings, pretend you have to go to the bathroom, walk the other way. Guy's going to steal stuff. For, it's larceny whenever he gets involved in a trade and the, and the avalanche as a whole, I should say, because it is a, a full operation there, get involved in a trade. Getting Brandon Saad from the Blackhawks for uh, Lindholm and Zador- Zadorov. Uh, having the Blackhawks take a little bit of the salary, the Devin a Taves little, a trade. A million dollars. I know. A million is not insignificant. It's not. The Devin Taves trade where they trade two second rounders, the Islanders. The Islanders are really up against it when it comes to the cap, knowing that they have to re-sign mm-hmm. Matt Barzell. Um, Taves is a very, very capable defenseman, a very, very smart pickup for them. Um, strong offseason for Joe Sackick, at making a, a cup contender even better uh, through smart management. And then the other guy I wanted to point out, too, because – you know, in the celebration of the Tampa Bay Lightning winning the Stanley Cup, I think that there is a reexamination of how good the Steve Eiserman, Julian Brisebois duo was in building that team. And then, you know, Stevie goes back to Detroit, kind of falls off the map because the Red Wings suck. And then, oh, lo and behold, had an incredibly good offseason. I mean, you know, so far, the, the every every deal he signed was below market value has the potential for high return. I like giving Bobby Ryan a show me deal for one year and 1 million, um, hoping that he got his life back on track, giving him bigger, bigger minutes than he would have had uh, elsewhere. Thomas Grice, obviously an upgrade over Jimmy Howard. Um, he gets a second round pick along with Mark Stahl for like one year from the Rangers. And then they buy out just an ablocator's contract. Like these, this is the, the good work that gets done before your team starts to turn the corner. And, I think he has upwards of like six picks in the first three rounds of the next draft too. So, things think that the, the we've talked a long time about the Shanna plan in in Toronto. I don't know what you would call the Eiserman thing, the Eiser scheme. I don't know, but it's start you're starting to kind of see the pieces fit a little bit in Detroit, and I think that's but that was impressive. Um, and then the other team I wanted to kind of give a shout out to, or player I wanted to give a shout out to, was Kevin Shattenkirk. I mean, mm. as you talked about earlier, the, there are trends that we're seeing under the cap and in the new economic environment in the NHL, long-term deals getting bought out, that kind of thing. There's also been buyouts of deals that just didn't work out for whatever reason. And, you know, Shattenkirk was the, uh, was the prime free agent defenseman a few off seasons ago, goes back home, plays for his favorite team as a kid, the New York Rangers injuries happen and effectiveness happens. The Rangers start to tank. Um, and so he doesn't really fit into the equation, gets the buyout, goes to Tampa, on a bargain basement deal. And now this is not a new trend. Like we saw Brad Richards do this. We saw other players do this where they, they take the buyout money and then they go to another place and, and try to kind of like rebuild their reputation a little bit, or, or in some cases chase a cup. I think Shattenkirk does both of those things here. I think he knows he's not near the end of his career, but he also clearly wants to chase a cup. So gets his name on the Stanley cup plays really well for them in the regular season and the postseason. parlays that into a three year deal with the Anaheim ducks with trade protection. That's just like the ideal way for this to work out for a guy that takes a buyout is this. Mm-hmm. And it was just really mm-hmm. cool to see it happen to Shattenkirk, who I think is a really good guy. And, and it kind of bums me out that things didn't work out better for him with the Rangers. I want to just do a quick check in on the goalies because this was <laughs> the big storyline this summer. It is dizzying when you act like we talk about the goaltender carousel. I don't know who came up with that word, but it's like everybody's choice word to talk about. It literally was a carousel. Yep. Lundqvist, New York to Washington. Braden Holpe, Washington to Vancouver. Markstrom, Vancouver to Calgary. Cam Talbot, Calgary to Minnesota. Minnesota, Devin Dubnik to uh, San Jose. Then you've got Corey Crawford going up to New Jersey. Love the Corey Crawford signing. We're going to talk about Chicago, I know, a bit later, and we'll talk about what's going on there. I do think they did him wrong with the way they handled the situation. Um, I love all of these signings. I, I, I really love the fact that Anton Kadobin also got three years, which he had never previously gotten in his career since he was mm-hmm. an entry-level contract. That man deserves it. The one team that just baffles me, baffles me. We talked to Kevin Adams about the Sabres not getting a guy. I think they still could. What the heck are the Oilers doing? I understand they wanted Markstrom, <laughs> made a big play for him, got snubbed in the Battle of Alberta when he chooses Calgary Flames. But to bring back Mike Smith at more yeah. money than Henrik Lundqvist is making, <laughs> yeah. that's silly. <laughs> it is a little silly. I, I, to put a bow around it, you mentioned the goalies. I think we could say with some certainty right now that the goalies 
got paid. I, I, they may not have necessarily all gotten term. Cam Talbot got term. Obviously, Jacob Markstrom got term. Uh, other guys didn't necessarily get term, but they all got their money. Like, Corey Crawford got his money. Like, there, there was clearly... He got the term uh, he wanted, which is one, more than one year. Right, that's true, too. Uh, the defensemen all got their money and all got their term. I mean, we saw the contracts for Petrangelo mm-hmm. and Krug. We saw the contracts for Brendan Dillon and Chris Tanov and, and a bunch and of guys. even Schultz. Yep, exactly, right. <laughs> so all those players got their money. They got their term. Defensemen were clearly the premium on the market along with the glut of goaltenders. Now, I don't know if it's just because we didn't have the forwards that we had last summer. Um, I don't know if it's just the way of the world under COVID where you have a larger pool of forwards you could pick from. I don't know Mm -hmm. what it is, but the forwards were clearly the most affected by the flat cap and the internal budget constraints by teams. The middle class disappeared. Um, You only saw four unrestricted free agent forwards signed for three or more years. Uh, Toffoli, Craig Smith, Jesper Fast, and Zegmas Gergensen's. Everybody else is taking short-term deals, in Taylor Hall's case, a one-year deal to get the money he was looking for. Um, you look back to last uh, offseason, there were 14 contracts or th- of three or more years for forwards. And what you don't see this year are the Ryan Carpenters or Richard Panics or Brent Connolly types getting three or more years, which is what we mm-hmm. saw last summer. And, and that is such a huge change. The, the money on average is lower. The term is lower. It's clear that forwards are the biggest group impacted by the new economics of the NHL. Absolutely. And, you know, you alluded to the long-term deals. No one got long-term deals. Two guys got long-term. Three guys got long-term deals, and they were three of the biggest names. So um, it's interesting. The other thing, too, that was a bit of a trend was structure, um, mm-hmm. the hump deal. And you see in so oh, many of these deal. contracts. Uh, like, let's look at Toriku, for example. He got a seven-year deal. First two years, he's only making $4 million. Year three, what's supposed to happen in year three? Oh, yeah, we're going to recover from this pandemic. All of a sudden, right. it bumps up to $8 million. The next couple of years, $8.5 million. And then it ends a little lower at six point five and $6 million. Even in the shorter-term deals that we saw, Kevin LeBanc was a guy that re-signed with the Sharks. By the way, this was Doug Wilson clearly saying, I got you, man. You did us a solid last year. <laughs> yeah, I'll repay exactly. you now. He's only making $3.2 million this year, 3.95. Then it bumps up year three, 5.875, 5.875. Um, so with the escrow system, you understand where the players are coming at from this. They don't want to take less out of their paychecks. Um, and, and GMs, too, with a flat cap and understanding the constraints, um, they're trying to be budget conscious the next two years. And everyone is crossing their fingers that things are normal. We get mm-hmm. Seattle in, we get that new TV deal in, money starts pumping in, and in three years from now we can recover from this. But that just lets us know the next two seasons might be a bit bleak. Real quick, Joe Thornton, what do you think? Do you think he ends up in Toronto or do you think he goes back to San Jose or do you think he retires? I, think, I don't think he's retiring. He's in Switzerland right now playing and I think he's enjoying it. Um, I think there's a pride thing with him. Like, I will end on my own terms, and if teams still want me, I'll still go. Um, I, I think there's an appeal to coach to the Maple Leafs, as we've seen with many free agents. Um, but, man, like Patrick Marlowe, maybe being there as he breaks Gordie Howe's um, streak, maybe Doug Wilson considers themselves making the playoffs next year. I don't know if they're expanding the postseason to 24 again, but uh, <laughs> who's to say? Um, I, I really think it's a coin toss between those two teams. What say you? I think he, I think he finishes as a shark. I think the, the reunion with mm-hmm. Marlowe, the fact that th- they could maybe sell him on if we're healthy, we're going to be a better team. I, it's hard for me to imagine at this point, even though he he, he indicated he wanted to move last season because it was such a lost season. You know, fresh fresh sheet of ice, as they say, for every team when the season starts. I, I do wonder whether get a new just, goalie. They've got yeah. a new goalie. Yeah, I wonder if he'll start. And it's Devin Dubnik. Exciting times. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of exciting time, exciting time for us. We have two of the greatest women's hockey players of all time uh, on the uh, podcast today: Cami Granado and Megan Duggan. And this is a great little interview. And now it is a privilege to welcome a joint interview, which is something we rarely get to do, and we rarely get to get two athletes of such high stature, but it is Cami Granado, uh, widely regarded as maybe the best women's hockey player in the U.S., and Megan Duggan, um, who just retired, and again, one of the greatest hockey players in the U.S. And we wanted to have you guys together because Megan announced her retirement this week. 
Um, and we just kind of want to look at what this means for women's hockey, kind of take a, a, a pulse check of where we're at. But Cammie, I'm going to start with you because you and I talked yesterday about the first time you met Megan. And I didn't realize it wasn't until 2017, the year before that 2018 Olympics, when they finally broke through and won gold for the first time in 20 years. Uh, can you walk us through, you know, what that meeting was like? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we had just talked on the phone. Um, they were going through um, some of the negotiations with USA Hockey, and that's right at the time where they had decided to hold out from going to the World Championships. And so um, Megan and I just talked on the phone. I think we had gone through it 20 years prior, and it didn't really go well for us. In fact, it bridged a huge gap between our ourselves and the organization. And so um, I knew the magnitude of it, and it was amazing that we were still trying to fight for that 20 years later, and I was so proud of what these girls were doing. But anyway, the call was um, just just to hear a little bit about our, you know, what we had done and just to sort of support Megan and knowing that you know we're behind you and anything we can do to help. And we just kind of talked a little bit about the experience and and then moving forward, but it was very clear to me from, from that conversation that she was a true leader. I mean, very, very evident. Just just her, her the way she could articulate things, the way she unified her team, the way she unified the players beyond her team, and, and her courage to, to stand up for something that was not easy. And I know that from, from a personal level. So I was super impressed right off the bat. And we just had a, a, an instant connection because both of us, obviously have been captains of, of our U.S. team and are part of the U.S. program, which makes us, um, you know, tight right away. Megan, you mentioned in your essay on ESPN.com that the the fight that Cammy's talking about uh, to get uh, equality from USA Hockey is one of the defining parts of your career. And I was wondering if you could talk about the continuation of that fight. I mean, you know, it, it's going to be an ongoing process. And obviously with the world economy changing and things like that, there's going to be organizations that try to claw back things under the cover of COVID. Uh, how confident are you that the, the, um, that the advancements that you've made and that uh, the, the national team players have made are going to be able to stick in the next several years? Yeah, a lot of great questions there. Um, <laughs> I think first and foremost, <laughs> first and foremost, um, I, that, Definitely. I mean, there's no truer words than saying that um, that battle and what our team went through, not only our team, but, um, you know, a lot of the women, uh, Cami specifically, that supported us throughout that battle. Um, you know, those were difficult days. Those were dark days and having to stick together. Um, so that, I believe, is, is a legacy of, of the U.S. Women's Hockey Program and a lot of the women that um, had a hand in that whether they were currently on the team, whether they were U18 or U22 players, or whether they were, as I mentioned, players like Cammy, who um, just mentored us, um, you know, and, and helped us out through that process. So that's certainly a legacy that I know that um, I'm, I'm very proud of and I'm proud of our team for. I think moving forward, um, a, lot of, a ton of progress was made, you know, and that was a historic deal that we were able to strike and, and move forward um, in creating better opportunities and more support and funding and marketing and programming uh, for our women's national program. Um, with that being said, uh, there is a long way to go. Um, I think in general um, for equality and equity and pay uh, for women and other marginalized groups in the world. And so navigating that process moving forward um, will, you know, as you mentioned, with all the, uh, the variables like COVID and, and things like that will definitely be tricky. Um, I think what I'm excited about and what I'm continuing to be proud of our team for is the, the battle is never going to end. Um, I know the women that are in that program, um, you know, myself included, a lot of the, the past veterans that have gone, gone through the program are committed, um, you know, to that fight for equality uh, in whatever that looks like moving forward. So it's, it's definitely going to be something that continues to come up and that we'll keep fighting for. But, um, you know, I love the responsibility of it and, and I'm, I'm eager to continue to keep tackling it. Cammy, I've only been covering hockey the last couple of years, and I'll be frank, I didn't know much about your team, and, and maybe it was more behind the scenes, um, but standing up to USA Hockey or trying to fight for these things and the friction that it caused, what were some of the things that you were asking for back then? And if you could just, you know, 
just the glimpse that you see now of how things have evolved, of what the women have now that you didn't have back then? So some of the things that we were fighting for back then were very similar to what the girls were fighting for and the women were fighting for uh, 20 years later. Um, you know, there was a lot of just things with just some equality to the men. Um, we, we talked about even just having uh, ability to have some transportation when we were stuck in different places and didn't have a way to get out of our, our you know, where we were staying. Um, mm. Little things, some, also some stuff with if you if you were to get married and have kids, um you know, nannies and, and that kind of thing. I mean, there were just a lot of little different things, but it was it was definitely about equality. It wasn't even about trying to match exactly what the men were getting. It was just giving some equality to what we had because we had nothing um, as far as just room and board and, and then you play. And so we were, we were looking for um, just some rights and it just, you know, got turned down pretty quickly. Did you have something to add, Megan? Um. No, I mean, she, she hit the nail on the head. I think I, um, I jumped the gun. I was going to talk just a little bit about, you know, some, the, the things that we were specifically fighting for at that time. But I think, um, I think a lot of that's out there. So, um, no, it's, I think just when I think about that time frame, um, we felt really proud and, um, to be going through with all of that, as I mentioned earlier, because I felt like, you know, Cami and, and many of those women on the 98 team or, you know, other teams prior to us had given us so much in terms of just like, um, you know, role models and idols. And, um, you know, I, I'd never seen elite women play hockey until I saw them and it inspired me to become so much. And so through that process of us fighting for those things, we felt in turn, you know, we were really honoring um, their generation of players and the, um, you know, the difficulties that they had had uh, with a lot of these things 20 years prior. So that was a big part of it for us as well. For sure. Uh, Megan, I wanted to ask you uh, an on the ice question. Uh, I, I covered uh, the team in Sochi and uh, saw the aftermath of that loss. And I thought it was interesting in the essay that you went into sort of the questions that are kind of banging through your head after a defeat like that, um, the way it happened, and obviously the anticipation of, of that, those games against Canada. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, was there a moment where you're like, what, what is this all for? <laughs> or can I do this all again? Or was it, was it always going to be a thing where you knew you were going to come back and, and, and take another crack at it? No, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, I've talked to a few people about this, but that, at that point in my life, you know, and I consider myself very lucky for this, but at that point in my life, I hadn't experienced a ton of, um, you know, like heartbreak personally, mm -hmm. professionally in my hockey career. And my mom and I were just reflecting on this last night, actually. But um, the way that that game in Sochi unfolded, you know, being the captain of the team, um, how it just slipped out of our hands at the end, it, it was I was devastated. Like I felt when I think back to that time, I think like my heart might've actually been broken. Like if you, people say like heartbroken and, um, and it was, it was, it was incredibly difficult. I took it very hard. Um, I had a really tough time in the months that followed the spring and summer, just kind of evaluating, like I said in my essay, you know, like who was I and like, what did I want? What was important to me? Why was I doing this? Um, and, you know, our team made that mission very clear in the years between 14 and 18 and, um, you know, talked a lot about the transformation of our program and the things that we wanted to do or had to do in order to get a different result. And one of the pillars that we talked about a lot was, you know, you can't stay the same and expect a different result. So we spent four years really transforming um, everything and um, asking ourselves those tough questions and, um you know, wanting to do everything we could to put ourselves in a position to not have that same result we had had, you know, in 2014 and in 2010. Um, and then, you know, prior to my career in 2006 and in 2002, I mean, um, we, we had to change some things. And that took a lot of difficult um, conversations and, you know, staring yourself in the mirror a lot and figuring out what you were made of. So, yeah, I certainly had, you know, my doubts in that spring and summer time period, I think, because I was, like I said, recovering from a little bit of a devastation and heartbreak, but um, obviously was able to kind of move through that and, and mature through that a little bit and learn a lot about myself and, and kind of transform in the years that followed. Just because I think it's so unique that we can get both of you on the phone at the same time, 
I'm going to kind of like break the fourth wall. I don't even know what I'm doing, but I'm going to ask Cammy to address Megan directly. Cammy, like, you took a long time between when you retired as a player um, to getting back into the game in a formal way, now working for an NHL organization. And I understand you had some opportunities that came along the way. You were starting your family. Maybe the timing wasn't right. Um, but now that you are, you're working for NHL Seattle. They're an incredible organization doing things differently than anyone's ever done before. You know, you see inside what it takes. What's your advice to Megan now as she retires and kind of figures out her way of, of what she wants to do? Because, Megan, you know, you told me you want to stay involved in hockey and you still want to make an impact. Like, what, what would your advice to her be? Um, I think, Megan, my advice would just be it's all subjective to, to what you know as what your family can handle. And I think there's no, there's no real um, time that's pressuring you. If something comes up that you think fits in, then, then take it. If something comes up and you, you know you really want it, but you just you want to be at home with George or you want to, you want to keep your family uh, you know, first and you, and you think that this is just too much, it's going to take you too much away from them, then, then you can wait because things will come your way. Um, and for me personally, I know there were things that I, I had to say no to that were quite hard but I knew in my heart that I just wanted to be with my family because my husband traveled a lot and I didn't want two parents on the road um, and the kids at home with, you know, with a nanny all the time. So for me personally, I waited and I waited a lot longer than, you know, I think people thought, or even my parents were like, are you getting, you know, are you, you going to take that opportunity? And I was like, you know, sorry, I can't, I'm not going to take it. I even had pressure from the family. So I think in the end, everyone understood that when the timing was right for me, I was going to take something. And I think it did, you know, I did wait a long time, but I feel like it was worth it for me. So I think it's just subjective to what feels right for the family. And I know for you, Megan, that whenever you want to get back in the game or whatever role you want to take, you know, that'll be there whenever you want it because um, you have too much to give and um, and it's not over. Your hockey your hockey career, you know, on the ice is over, but not, not in the sport. It's a very beautiful thing to say. Megan, Great you, want to be, you want to be a general manager, and that is awesome. <laughs> How do we make this happen? I talked to Angela Riguero a few a few months ago about it. I know I, I think she was actually got a phone call from the Panthers about their opening at some point. But like the the fact that the 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 national team players are you know have such a name recognition and, and such cachet in the sport. How have have you been given advice on how to kind of get your foot in the door with regards to achieving that dream? Not not specifically in that sense. No, I think. Um, you know, for me, when I, when I said that I've, um, so when I, I was a young kid, right, I, I, I saw these women like Cammy and some of her teammates and I created, you know, I had this dream, you know, when I was 10 years old, I said, um, I want to captain team USA to a gold medal and really just like, you know, I built my life around that dream in any way that I could. And I had a ton of people tell me, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. I was this young kid, you know, from this small town and this and that. And, um, I just decided to, you know, dream big, they say, right? And so when I think about what's next, um, I, you know, I think a little bit, what's the biggest dream I can think of at this point? Um, and that is, it's certainly a, it's obviously a lofty one, but something that I think would be interesting, um, obviously, and, and would enjoy working towards. So in, in terms of, um, you know, receiving advice, I think at, at this point with where I'm at, um, the number one thing I want to do is, you know, continue to learn from so many different people in in many industries, obviously, or many um, different positions, uh, whether that's hockey or business, and just kind of be like a sponge um, and soak everything in. I've obviously learned a lot about a lot of different aspects, um, you know, through my hockey career and, and being put into leadership positions and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I have a, a lot to learn and um, a lot of great mentors and, um, you know, role models and icons to kind of continue to, to look at and learn from. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And um, I'm excited about doing that. I'm excited to, you know, as Cammie mentioned, um, and I think that's great advice at some point when the timing is right, um, you know, and under no pressure. And when I feel it's great for myself and my family, just go after whatever I want with, um, with kind of all my might and, and everything that I have. So, uh, but right now I'll just plan on kind of, um, you know, soaking things in and, and learning a little bit and moving forward after that. Well, ladies, we so appreciate your time. Um, thank you for this. And um, best of luck. I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. But most importantly, Great. congratulations, Megan. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big, big week for you. We appreciate it. Take care. Yep. Thanks a lot. Bye. The Stanley Cup playoffs are over, but the 2020 MLB postseason is underway. Tune in to the Baseball Tonight podcast for daily coverage wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our thanks to Megan Duggan, and Cammie Granado, two of the greatest. Uh, obviously, Cammie climbing up the ranks. Scout now for the Kraken. And uh, hopefully in 10 years or, or sooner, uh, Megan Duggan joins us again as the general manager of an NHL team. I say 10 years because she's young. And as mm. you know, general managers, by and large, aren't. Yeah, the like, John Chica thing just didn't yeah. age well. You, if you can only be young if you are uh, a, a, like an ex-NHL player or like really good with numbers. Otherwise, you have to be like... Or we call you a boy old. wonder. Right. Yeah. Vund- Vund- Dubis or Chica. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now it's time for a favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly oh, we look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessler's Hot Dogs, where we talk about the uh, hyperbole and the mistakes and all the nonsense in the hockey media. This, this, is, this is hockey media adjacent. Um, anyone giving oxygen to what a failed morning radio host is saying about a, a, a reporter, um, I know it has to happen to kind of stamp this thing out, but I don't need to really give it the spotlight here. We'll say just this. That uh, Haley uh, Salvian of The Athletic is an incredible reporter, a real rising star in the business. And if anybody thinks that there isn't more scrutiny and more dismissive language sent to women in the industry than there are to men is out of their minds. And even if you want to say that both genders get it, when they say it to me, it's, it's to say that I'm dumb. When they say it to someone else... It's to say that you don't belong here, and that's real pathetic. And uh, and I'm I'm happy to see the support that Haley is getting as we do this podcast today. Well said, Ally. <laughs> that's, that's right. Thank you. Here's my cookie. Uh, Dateline. <laughs> Dateline National Women's Hockey League. <laughs> All right. So we didn't get into this with with Duggan and, and Granado just because we had a lot of other things to get to, and I don't really even know what their take on it would be, but. Um, huge news for women's hockey this week as uh, Danny Ryland Kearney steps down as NWHL commissioner, will continue to work overseeing operations uh, as part of a, an ownership group that operates a couple of the teams. Um, Tyler uh, Taminia, who I found out, by the way, was... Mm-hmm. It's fascinating uh, backstory. Well, fascinating backstory, but also like... So here's the, here's a quick story. Uh, my wife uh, Ruby and I met at a blog conference um, <laughs> in Toronto. I know called Blogs of Balls. You may remember that name you, at some point. Could you be more on brand? I know, right? <laughs> so she she was working for USA Today, and I was working for Yahoo. But like we, when I said to Ruby like what was happening with Danny Ryland, she's like, "Oh, I remember that name. Where do I know that name from?" And it turns out Tyler was was on a panel during that conference to just kind of track back to how long Tyler's been, you know, involved in this industry. So um, it's a huge sea change for the NWHL. I mean, just incredible. Uh, Ryland had been sort of the face of that organization since its inception. Um, and, and a very complicated figure. I think there isn't a person in the industry that didn't recognize her hustle and how hard she was working and, and really putting in the effort to make that league a success outlasted her rival league. Um, and in some ways even outlasted the, the um, boycott or exodus or whatever you want to call it of the national team players to continue to play on through it. Um, but there's another side to her commissionership, which was that there were a lot of accusations about, you know, aligning with the wrong people. There was a lot of accusations about the disorganization and, and obviously stories about, you know, how the players had been treated behind the scenes and things of that nature. I mean, it is a lot to unpack when you talk about Danny Ryland's uh, legacy in this industry. Um, but I, I will say this to kind of, you know, dovetail out of the Phil Kessel's hot dog segment. Also put up with just stuff that hasn't never been reported, but like is sort of known to people that I've interacted with the NWHL has put up with just complete garbage in her life too, as, as the, the women at the head of a, of a sports organization. So, um, 
I don't even know where to start on this. Like, I, I, it, the, the, there's the, there's the functional, yeah, there's the functional team management aspect of this decision, and there's sort of the legacy of Danny Ryland in, in this with this league. So I think the legacy of Danny Ryland will always be she was the first person to pay women to play hockey professionally in North America. Good point. Like you yeah. can't take that away from her. But she was a one-woman show, and I think that was um, a big influence to her rise, but also to her demise because she was too much of a one-woman show. And as this league had to find ways to be sustainable, they brought other investors in, and the investors said, hey, behind the scenes, what's going on with the books? Can we see you know, some information? And there just was a lack of transparency and a lack of organization. And at some point, you kind of, as a leader, have to understand when you need help. And there was many steps along the way where Danny could have brought in other people to help her out, but was bullish on running this thing herself because it was her baby. Um, I think the, the obvious question, and you asked it to me yesterday, okay, Danny Ryland's out. We know she has friction with, I mean, I think it's noted that Hillary Knight and her don't get along. Like, I don't think right. we're breaking news here. Right. With a lot of the national team or elite players in the U.S. and Canada, she's gone. Will they come back to this league? I've talked to some of these players no. Uh, the players that are a part of the PHWPA are so committed to forming a new league. They're still hopeful that there will be some kind of formalized NHL relationship where they can share the infrastructure and resources. They're committed to this mission. Mission, And really, frankly, they view the NHL as a D-league right now because mm-hmm. that's kind of the ta- caliber of talent that's going there. Now, they think it's great that women are getting opportunities. They just don't think this is the opportunity for them. Well, maybe maybe one of those committees can look into it that the NHL has now to uh, oh they've know, got diversify. committees yeah Megan Megan's on one of the committees oh she's a committee member I mean who I is learned she? that the only people that aren't are the Hockey Diversity Alliance uh, Dateline Alberta <laughs> the Toronto Star reports that Alberta's Lake uh, Louise with its famous Rocky Mountain backdrop has been discussed internally as a possible location for the NHL's opening day. Now, this is interesting because the NHL has always flirted with the idea of doing outdoor games in places like Central Park, in places like the National Mall in D.C., um, in places where, you know, it would have been this sort of picturesque uh, boys on the pun, knocking the old puck around kind of thing, Mm -hmm. but that they could never do because what was the sense of doing these games if you couldn't have fans in the stands and have capacity? Well, guess what? Ain't going to be no fans in the stands, right? So, like, this is the opportunity to do something like this. Where would you like to see an outdoor game uh, between two teams to kind of kick off the season if it didn't matter that we didn't have to have fans there? Well, as somebody who just spent four days in Lake Louise, I'd like to see it there. I would like (laughs) to say it's quite picturesque, quite beautiful. It's right by Banff, which... Uh, when I was up in Canada and Alberta, this is where I went after uh, I was in Edmonton. I just took a couple of days in the mountains. Americans are obsessed with Banff. It's beautiful. <laughs> like We talk yeah. about it a lot. Um, I, I think it would be a really unique experience. And, you know, I also think there's a lot we could do there about environmentalism. And I think the NHL can make it a moment. Like pond hockey is disappearing because of global warming. Like we just mm-hmm. don't have frozen ponds anymore. Like maybe they make this their big, hey, we are a green league. We're a green push. And we're going to talk about climate change and start our season it would be cool to see um you know they couldn't do the winter classic probably this year in minnesota It would be cool to see a game somewhere in minnesota i mean it's not as if you don't have lakes to choose from um ryan our producer has a great great suggestion here play where they filmed mystery alaska there you go could do that and then if they're never going to do a game up there and maybe they will maybe they won't i mean the frozen tundra of lambeau field who says no (gasps) not i (laughs) <laughs> Not I. And right. I have to say, after covering yeah. football, the Lambeau grounds crew is some of the most impressive in the sport. They have an entire underground piping system. They could do it. Incredible. Uh, finally, Dateline Johnny Taves. This is up in your uh, neck of the woods there, Emily. Uh, Jonathan Taves telling The Athletic and our, our friend Mark Lazarus that uh, he's never been told they were that the team was going through a rebuild Quote, that has never been communicated to me for that matter. A lot of this comes as a shock because it's a completely different direction than we expected. He says that after the team sends out Brandon Sods and uh, says goodbye to Corey Crawford, uh, ships out Olimata, uh, the Blackhawks seem to be going in one direction and the core seems to be wanting to go in a different direction, Emily. I have to say, knowing Jonathan Taze, not well, but just knowing the way he operates, 
he speaks deliberately. Like when he speaks, it's because he has something to say. He was not, this was not like a Zoom scheduled conference. He made himself available to make these comments. And that's how you know, um, deep down inside, it really is irking them. And for the players, they felt like after this postseason, there was all this momentum and optimism. Oh, wow, we're transitioning on the fly. Kirby Doc is coming along. We've got Dabrinkit. We've got Strom. We've got Adam Boquist in the system. And now we just signed Ian Mitchell, who's our, one of our other top defensive prospects. And now you're telling us that all of this playoff exposure they got, that we can still do it, and Kane and Taze and Keith are still at an elite level, and you're going in a complete opposite direction? Like, they are pissed. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens there. Also fascinating, next week, it's a tradition on ESPN and Ice, the top 10 stories of the 2019-2020 season. I mean, I don't even know how the hell we're going to approach this because <laughs> it's like... I think we need to rebrand this. This is a, like... The top 10 things you forgot happened in this year. <laughs> yeah, did we do 10 for like the regular season, 10 for the pause, 10 for the restart? I think we should just do March on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, 10 from the Edmonton bubble, 10 from the Toronto bubble. We'll see how it goes. But uh, but next week's a, a, a big old favorite episode for everybody out there. We kind of wrap a bow around everything that's happened in the last, uh, I was going to say year, but it's only March 30th. So I'm not quite sure how to uh, chronicle time uh, anymore. Um, but anyways, uh, thanks to uh, Kevin Adams, GM of the Buffalo Sabres, joining us. Thanks to Cami Granado and Megan Duggan, uh, hockey legends, for joining us. Um, check out our coverage of free agency. We did the big old winners and losers uh, story on ESPN.com this week. And also check out Megan's essay with Emily. It's a real good read on a American hockey legend. So appreciate you guys. Um, I'm just going to do congratulatory Twitter, self-congratulatory Twitter here. Thanks so much for following our coverage. It was such a year. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts. 